0: Hello. Ken Bruce no longer works for the BBC. The presenter of the most popular radio programme in the United Kingdom, who has 8.5 million listeners, has left Wogan House and Radio 2 for Greatest Hits Radio. Is this really what he and the BBC wanted? And why did the corporation decide that he should go three weeks before the end of his contract? Well, neither side is saying much, but it does seem an unnecessarily painful separation. One of Ken's colleagues at his new station probably knows how he feels. When Simon Mayo left Radio 2, feeling, it is said, rather unloved, he found that he could not get out of the building because his pass had already been cancelled while he was on air. He was shocked, as he'd always seen himself as a BBC lifer it can safely be said that the BBC is not a sentimental organisation. Well, Simon has taken his drive-time show to greatest hits, where it's piling on audiences, and his film review with Mark Mode is now a non-BBC podcast. So, Simon Mayo, radio presenter, podcaster, author, so many titles,
1: how would you describe yourself? Um, (laughs) uh, well, I'm a radio guy, mainly, who does a bit of writing you know radio and writing i suppose my twitter biog just says nil desperandum which is a family motto but if it if it wasn't that it would say radio and writing and if
0: it came to a choice what's more important
1: well yeah i mean i mean radio pays better So it would have to be that, you know, and I've done it and I've done it for longer, you know.
0: Well, as a former Radio 4 presenter, I'm surprised the radio pays better. But never mind. I think in your world, perhaps you're a little better remunerated. But can we talk about the the departure of the host of the most popular radio programme in the country? And many would regard as one of the BBC's absolute stars yes Uh, do what do you uh, well he is I mean he's just a brilliant broadcaster and a lot of people will love the BBC partly because of Ken what can you tell us about his departure do you think he had planned for a while to leave the BBC
1: I cannot claim any any insights into Ken or what he was thinking or anything so I mean I we, we saw each other the other day that we did a a TV ad and Photo shoot for greatest hits radio, but all I could say is, oh, this takes me back to, and you can probably find it somewhere. There was a photograph this is when I was at Radio One. there was a photograph taken of all the Radio One presenters, and as ever, it was on the steps of All Souls, Langham Place, just next door to Broadcasting House, where my parents got married anyway that 's where their wedding photo was taken in parentheses. so we had this photograph taken, and I think it was the sun printed the picture and added up all the ages of the Radio 1 presenters. As I recall, it came to over a 1,000, right? So they then started a campaign about how old the Radio 1 presenters were. And this was when Simon Bates was moved on. And so this was the kind of... I went from breakfast to mid-morning. There were other schedule changes. Matthew Bannister came in, you know. So I guess the context that I'm reaching for here is this stuff has happened since... Radio started playing pop music. A radio station looks at itself and thinks, are we playing the right music and do we have the right presenters? And if they come to the conclusion that, that you know there's something to be done, then they go about it. I understand that, but you're talking about the man who's the most
0: popular broadcaster possibly on the BBC, whose show it dropped a little bit, but not that much, is the most popular programme. And it seems a rather curious decision. I mean, take John le Cary for example. In his 80s, he wrote two wonderful thrillers. Now, they weren't masterpieces by his own standard, but they were far better than almost anything anybody else was writing. You don't say to an 84, three or four-year-old John Le Carrier, "Oh, we don't want to print your latest book because we think you're too old in some way. And so, although you have a general policy in a channel of making sure you're not, not out of touch with your audience and its interests, the fact is some people are stars and some people aren't. You're a star. Ken's a star. It's a It's a strange decision to let them go, and the suggestion is that they were, let us say, not not very quick to suggest to Ken that there was a future contract in place for him, and he, being a rather proud man and being offered a very, uh, one gathers, uh, quite lucrative contract elsewhere, decided to jump before he was pushed. But why should he have felt vulnerable? Why should the BBC have let a person of that quality feel vulnerable?
1: As you know, I haven't you know, I, I haven't been in the building for a while, but there is a natural process. I mean, th- this can be well-managed or it can be badly managed, but if you decide that you want to attract an audience in their 30s and 40s, you will go about finding presenters who are closer to that age. And if Radio 2 is refocusing younger, then that's good news for greatest hits radio and uh and stations like us because you know and maybe they're right to do that I don't know so I uh, Ken doesn't talk to me about these kind of things neither should he uh, nor the BBC but I but I think you know it's it's part of a pattern that pop music stations undergo and I also of course was surprised to find that they were prepared to well, were they prepared to see the end of Ken? I don't know, because Ken decided. So he decided to go. So he was obviously thinking, well, this is my moment.
0: Yes, but you know what it's like. You know what it's like better than anybody else, and I felt the same. I mean, you may know, You want you've got your pride. You don't want to be sacked. You want to go on your own terms. But you're also hoping that, The controller will come through the door and put his arm around you, or she is going to put her arm around you. Except he wouldn't be allowed to do that now. Anyway, come and sit next to you, have a chat, take you out for a meal, say how wonderful you are, take a real interest in you. You've served us for decades. You've made us the most popular broadcaster. Okay, maybe it's time for you to move on if you think that. But really, we love you, etc., etc. Instead, these things. (laughs) I mean, you yourself, for example were treated pretty brutally. I mean, I remember you telling me on feedback that, that you tried to leave the building after your last programme and they'd already revoked your identity card. That must, Simon, that must have hurt, mustn't it?
1: Well, the um, the revoking of the past <laughs> was... It was like the uh, the icing on the cake of a rather... I'm going to mix my metaphors, aren't I? Icing on a, a pretty shabby cake. But any, it was an institutional failure and the person responsible emailed me afterwards and said, I'm very sorry... I think big institutions do these kind of things very badly. I don't think there's any reason for that to happen. But if you run a big organisation, it's easy to mishandle these affairs. And that's what ha- that's certainly what happened with me. And, and the, you know, the past was just a, you know, a ludicrous thing. Yeah, but after all your years,
0: after I know, but after all your years on the BBC and delivering audiences and being extremely successful... The way in which they do things matters. And what I'm baffled about, and I'm partly on my own history in this, is this isn't something new. This seems to keep happening. It's happened 40 years ago, 30 years ago, whatever. And in the past, you maybe can put it down to brute monopoly. You know, most people didn't have anywhere else to go. You should be grateful you worked for the BBC. And so they sometimes didn't spend as much time on on, on relationships, if you like, as a smaller company did. Well, now they're in a position where there's real competition, where you are at the moment. Greatest hits and so on, your audiences are going up. Okay, so it's relatively narrowly focused, but there it is, it's increasing. The BBC can't afford anymore to be that
1: cavalier, can it, with its talent? I'm struggling with my lack of insight for you, Roger, (laughs) here. From my point of view, from my perspective yes it is surprising that this was allowed to develop but i think there is an inevitable process at work here which is as old you know as as pop music on the radio and the situation has been handled badly and yes you're right broadcasters have egos <laughs> and we like to feel as though we're doing a good job in ken's case he was doing the best job possible so you would think that you know that would be made very clear to him
0: But we've got a crisis here of the future of the BBC. This is what baffles me. We know the BBC is being squeezed very tightly. The licence fee is frozen. It's very unlikely whatever next government comes into power, they'll increase dramatically the licence fee. So it's under great pressure. There's never been more competition. So the BBC, in some ways, is fighting for its life, or life as it's known it. And it needs people like you and me, but particularly people there, to feel affectionate for it to feel they want to go and defend it and defend public service broadcasting. They're not really going out of their way to make friends or keep friends, are they?
1: I think there is that kind of broad approach, that macro approach which you're talking about. I think this comes down to a far more common, more familiar micro issue, not a macro issue, and that was mishandling of a a situation. That's it, you know, assuming that a particular member of staff was fine when they weren't.
0: But they should know. I mean, but your job, I've tried to... I've been a BBC manager and perhaps not a very successful one, but what your key jobs is, and particularly if you're running Radio 2, for example, is to, which is so dependent on certain key talent, is to keep that talent happy and keep them loyal. And it clearly hasn't done that. I mean, there is another thing happening, of course, which is, as we've discussed, a large number of alternatives opening up. So if people are unhappy... Uh, they can go, and if if you do a count of all the sort of people who've left the BBC of a certain age, uh, you could. it looks very much as the BBC getting rid of lots of older presenters. Well, if that's not the case, if they're just listening, if it's a combination of factors, the fact is that you're losing with people like you and people like Ken, Lionel Messi. And Leonel Messi's don't come along for a long time. Where do you find the next ones?
1: That's great. I'm sure, Ken, would love to be... Lionel Messi. He was wearing a shirt the other day, which Lionel Messi would definitely never be seen wearing. Yes, well, you make some very some very good points. I come from a family who was brought up with the BBC. My mother worked for the BBC. My brother still does work for the BBC and as a freelance and I spent many years at the BBC. I still believe in the BBC and the, and the public service remit that they have. I am not there and I'm in commercial radio and loving it and we see commercial opportunities where the BBC dropped the ball and clearly that's happened in this case and we're very keen, you know, to pick it up. And we've had so many messages from people saying, oh, you know, I've looked for Greatest Hits when I heard what was happening to Ken and I found your show. This is great. You know, And we've just launched premium which is a sub- subscription service where you get commercial radio without the commercials, you know, which I think is, you know, it's very exciting and very different thinking, wow, this is a-, a completely new way of looking at it. So all of my focus really is on looking at that and thinking, well, if the BBC is deciding to do less, which maybe is a good thing, then there's an opportunity for us to do more. And yesterday we had a, which we do fairly regularly. We had a new listener day and we just encouraged new listeners to text in or email in, and then we'd say hello to them. I used to do this on the Breakfast Radio One, and I thought it'd be a good idea to start it again. Anyway, and it's, it's exciting, and I like doing it. Well, for the first sort of year, we'd have, uh, I don't know, I'd read out maybe 20 messages. Now, they're in their hundreds, you know, and I can't keep up with them. And in the end, I'm thinking, oh, I can't mention everybody here because, you know, we'll be doing no other features at all. So this is all anecdotal, but it does feel to me like a moment when because of Ken moving, it is, you know, I'm just thrilled that its greatest hits that is the station that said, yes, we'll have Ken. That it's a moment where things shift and there will be many Thousands of listeners who who knows what the figures are, but anecdotally, it feels as though there are many people who are coming our way because they've been growing up with Ken. Now, I'm surprised that, um, he that he that of the circumstance, everything I'm surprised by all that, but are you
0: surprised? Can I pick up that? Are you surprised by the fact that the BBC brought forward his last show? My understanding is that Ken expected to fulfill his contract go away on the Friday and start the next Monday with greatest hits. And the BBC has decided, no, that's not the case. Friday of uh, the first Friday in March shall be his last week on the programme. Now, I understand the commercial reasons for that. You don't want uh, someone to stop on a Friday and perhaps advertise where they're going to be on a Monday and try to take the audience across with them. But again, that looks a bit cold doesn't it? I mean, after all these years, were you surprised by that decision to, as it were, to advance
1: the date of Ken's departure? Uh, well, I think what's surprising is that it lingered as long as it did. If you're on social media, the Greatest Hits Radio Twitter icon is Ken Bruce. <laughs> Ken is an advert for Greatest Hits Radio now, so I, I can understand why they might have thought we need to hasten these things, but you know it 's again it 's unfortunate because it feels it does feel messy, and that is un- that is unfortunate. I can imagine in commercial radio he might have been out the door sooner. that is the way gardening leave works
0: anyway let 's move on uh, move on that from that <laughs> uh, to to you yourself now another thing which has surprised me is um your conti- why should I be surprised by this your continue uh, continued relation with Mark Commode. What fascinates me about that relationship is a two-hander is an extraordinarily difficult thing to pull off consistently. Timing and everything else, and, and obviously when the experiment with you and Joe Wilder, they're in rather different circumstances, was not a great success. What is it about you and Mark Commode that you your timing, your connection, you just seem to fit into each other? Yeah, I mean... Did you know that from the beginning?
1: No, it was Matthew Bannister. He was controller radio one, and he put me and Mark together. Mark had been doing film reviews on Mark and Lard's late night show, and when I moved from breakfast to mid mornings, I'd said I'd quite like to do film reviews, and he said, "Why don't you try it with Mark? He's doing it on late night." So we tried it out, and it and it began there, and it, and it just carried on. Originally, it was like a ten minute feature. First band was video uh, film releases and the second band was vhs videos and when i went to five live i rang up mark and it was anyway and at some stage mark decided he was too old for radio one and left and we carried on doing films with james king but when i went to five live i rang mark and said why don't we do this again but make it like an hour you know so from three till four on a friday so we did that as part of the the Five Live show, and that started to work and started, you know, and sparked again. And Is it a bit like Malcolm and Wise? I mean,
0: in the sense that somebody has to be the feed, but also it doesn't work if the feed is only the feed. I mean, I'm quite fascinated about why relationships like this work and why they last.
1: Yeah, I mean, there, there is a certain chemistry which is, you know, which is hard to describe. I think if you boil it down... We do very different jobs. There is only one film expert on the programme, and that's him. There is only one kind of host, and that's me. My role is at what Johnny Vaughan said. I had to look this up after he said it. But my, He said, you, you have a choric role. Uh, this is, you know, Greek tragedy. The role of the Greek chorus is to tell people what's going on, because when Mark speaks, sometimes it's not immediately clear what's going on. <laughs> so my job is to cut in, in, you know, and say... I don't understand what you're talking about. So I am i am the host. He is the critic. And the roles are very clearly lined up. I have opinion on film, but I'm not a critic. I do the interviews with the guests. Mark doesn't do that. He just So we have clearly defined roles. And I don't think you can ever kind of boil it down really as to why it works. It's just that it does, I think. And I think we both understand that in speech radio... I mean, we're podcasting, but it's still speech radio, that if you talk about things in the right way, it can span generations. And I think because we look at it the same way, even though we're two old white guys, I think we feel like quite a progressive program. That isn't something that's forced. That's just the way we look at the world. And We have so many people who will say, I listened to this show with my father or I used to listen with my grandparents or, you know, they write to us to say that their grandfather has died or something like that and that they just wanted to tell us. So we used to have a bit on the program called Births, Marriages and Deaths because that's kind of what it what it felt like. So this is a rambly answer to your question, Roger. So I don't really know what the answer is other than we have clearly defined roles and we do what we do quite well.
0: And do you still have the appetite
1: to continue?
0: There's no sense in which you think you're coming to the end of this.
1: Well, we'll reach the end at some stage when we just get too weary to carry on. But, you know, we are sort of about a year into our relaunch podcast only. So it seems to be going very well. I think we're the most subscribed podcast in Britain or something like that. They tell me these things. So we're we're still feeling our way, really. We've got some more live shows coming up, you know, which is very exciting. And podcasting is just one of those bits, which is of course just speech radio in a different in a different guise, but it's like boiled down speech radio. It's even more personal, you know, than radio. So I think we're still expanding. We're still just trying to work out what we can do and how to do it. But essentially, it's two people talking about film. That's and life.
0: I'm much older than you, but you're in your sixties. You still seem to be to be intensely driven. I mean, you would have thought everything we discussed would be enough for you, but for that, well, more than ten years ago, you started to write uh, novels. First of all, for children. Now you've written thrillers, a particularly good one about Dartmoor, and um, uh, which is, I find, quite terrifying. But I mean, that really is hard work on top of everything else. Why? Why? Why are you so driven?
1: That's a, yeah, um, that's a good question. I don't. I mean, I, I have asked myself this because my sister isn't, and uh, my brother isn't, but I am, so I don't know. The only, if I had to analyse it, this is very COD, I think. We moved house two or three times, and I think I was in a particular place in my schooling where I constantly felt as though I was, you know, the odd one out, that I was the one that didn't fit. And I wanted to, you know, and I was never, ever, I mean, not even at any stage in my six decades never been one of the cool set so I just wanted to prove myself I think so. But you have
0: but you obviously need to keep on doing it I mean could you describe your day to me Uh, for example when do you do your writing Are you one of these people who gets up at six writes till eight does 1500 words then gets on with the rest of the day I mean what is the pattern of your day?
1: Um, Well the pattern of the day varies a lot depending on whether there's a screening uh, to go to a movie star to talk to and record. But there's drive time. And there's drive time. I'm in the drive time studio from about two, half past two. So there's there's that to do. The writing is difficult to fit it in. I've got a book on the go at the moment. I'm only 20,000 words in when I should be 40, really. So I have an understanding publisher and editor, I hope, unless they're cursing me behind my back. But I enjoy doing all... I like having them in balance and... It would feel weird not to be... I mean, I've only, as you say, I've only been writing for 13 years, but I find it hard to imagine life without having some kind of story on the go and trying to piece together. But So my days are very varied, but they all come to the same point at about half past two when I'm in the greatest hit studio. So that's very much the... That's always the end point. What happens from six o'clock in the morning when the coffee starts will vary a lot. On, the, on Wednesdays, we record the film show... Uh, in the morning, that's a long record. I also do a books podcast called Books of the Year, just because I want to keep the, you know, I want to keep talking to authors. So I don't know. I'll have to slow down one day, Roger, but it's not, it's not just yet.
0: But mm, it seems to me, um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of why this is. I mean, uh, it, it, it's a sense in which um, you feel guilty if you're not wholly occupied in doing something.
1: I mean, are you any good on a beach? Well, I'd be reading, I think. I'm not very good at sitting and doing nothing no I would like to be active thank you very much I don't want I wouldn't want to sit by a pool for very long although if I'm reading then that's fine
0: but you never think you're in sort of a, you know, when you're in uh, a sort of prison. I mean, pleasant prison or whatever, but, you know, every day I have to be in this place. Every afternoon I have to be there. You know, oh, I'd like to go to China. I'd like to go, perhaps not China, India, whatever it is. I'd like to go and fly around the world. Know you in this studio at this time. It's quite a regimented life you have, isn't it?
1: No, it is. I like the routine. I like knowing what I'm doing when I'm doing it. I am, like a lot of radio people, I find I'm very aware of the clock. Even though I was 10 minutes late coming up for this podcast, I'm just aware of the time all the time. And I'm also aware also that it would be nice to to travel more. Yes. Yeah. You know, you're absolutely right.
0: Doubtless your wife would have a view on that. I never do inside information, but I suspect she would.
1: No, absolutely. And I have I'm uh, a grandfather now and he's eight months old and lives in Denmark. So we go to Denmark a lot. So I think, you know, looking forward in, in, into the next few years, I mean, who knows what the pattern will be? I think it's fairly set as far as, I you know, drive time. I'm going to be doing that for a long time, I hope. I like the books podcast. I like the film podcast. I like writing. Into that, uh, you know, uh, travel would be good. Be, uh, and we'd like to do some of that. But I, you know, I do think we... we we have to keep working for longer, Roger, you know. It's not like you get your pension at 65 and, and you know, peg out two years later.
0: Truth is, if you've had as interesting a life as you and I have had, you can't stop, can you? Because what would be as interesting as doing what you're doing? It's extremely difficult to find anything. You can see we can go around the world and all of that, but when you get back, what do you do? This idea, this old-fashioned idea of retirement, as if you know, it's somehow a pleasure to go to sleep in the afternoon. I mean, it's baffling to me, and presumably baffling to you.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I you know, I work working Wogan House all those years. would see David Jacobs and Brian Matthew coming in, uh, in the, you know, in their in their eighties and nineties. You know, thinking, "Yep, yeah, I think that's pretty cool." You know, far better to still be performing and still doing a radio show the great thing about radio is it's so it's so much more forgiving than than television
0: but it's much more tiring in some ways isn't it because i can spot any audience can spot if the presenter's an autopilot if they're talking to the audience and they are just oh Robert, thank you very much and that somebody tells them something deeply personal oh, thank you very much and on to the next thing i mean one of the things that absolutely marks out you and marked out ken it seems to me is you still listen and sometimes, with if I may say so, with great sensitivity to what people are saying, how do you that requires a colossal amount of concentration. How do you do that? Because there must be moments where you think I've done everything before and drift off. How do you retain that focus?
1: I think in life it's important to stay curious and stay interested and stay focused and the interviews that I do. I consider, for the most part, there are always exceptions, to be an immense privilege. If you're still in a position to have your 15 minutes with Michael Douglas, uh, Hugh Jackman, uh, Tom Hanks, Anne Hathaway, the uh, Steven Spielberg, these are extraordinary people, and it's an immense privilege to talk to them. Therefore, the only two things I, I think are important in an interview is do your prep, and listen to the answers and be prepared to you know junk what you're planning to say and follow what it is your interviewee is saying and there's a certain formula and ritual to a lot of the the interviews that I do because they'll be well I'm promoting you know we're playing a game I'm promoting this film I want to tell you about this thing but there, there will always be something in there to get hold of and think oh really that's quite interesting tell me more about that And I did an interview with um, Depeche Mode, which is going out soon on on Greatest Hits. You know, these are extraordinary, extraordinarily successful musicians. I interviewed them in 1990 for Radio One. So uh, I just feel thrilled that I'm still in a position to be doing it. But I think more broadly, it's staying curious about the world. It's reading about everything. It's listening and staying focused. And I'm... and if you're engaged with that, how can you not be thrilled and excited to go on the radio? And as the late, great Roger Scott, you know, used to talk about having, you know, the biggest jukebox in the world. You know, you're sharing music, you're listening to it communally. And that's still thrilling.
0: And if the BBC picked up the phone to you and said, please come back, would it be a long conversation or a short one?
1: It would be a very short conversation. No, Um Greatest Hit, Bauer Media, who took me to Scarlet and then moved me to well, didn't move now. You know, they said, "What do you think about going back to Drive Time and Greatest Hits?" Have been fantastic for me. I am, by instinct, a very loyal person, and I will stick with them. And the way everything is, the Greatest Hits, it feels like the future, which is ironic because we're playing seventies, eighties, nineties music, some sixties, you know, all that. So we're playing old stuff, but it feels. So there's wind in our sails. It feels like a very exciting place to be. And and they stood up, you know. And when I was looking for an alternative, they they said, "Come over here." So no, no, it would it would be a very short conversation, Roger.
0: And do you think you'd be joined by anybody else from the BBC at this attritional rate of slightly older presenters? Perhaps you could suggest
1: someone who will be next to join you. <laughs> I am sure that um i mean if i was still if i was still at radio two now i would be thinking blimey you know where am i going to go next i'm sure there are i'm i'm sure that's an inevitable feeling but we you know we all have we all have a certain lifespan in a radio station and i think it's then you know you have to be attuned to that if the management are good they will have a a conversation with you over you know over many years. So, for example, when Johnny Billing was at Radio One, I was doing breakfast, and we had an agreement that if he wanted me to go or if I wanted to go, we would give each other six months' notice. And that's actually more or less what happened. Although he was, you know, he moved and then Matthew Banister came in. But anyway, it was fun. But what I mean is, it was a it was a proper long term discussion about the way things should be. And it may you know maybe those conversations are happening now. I don't know, but yes, there are many. Many fine broadcasters there who would be very welcome, I'm sure, but uh, I ain't going to mention them because they, <laughs> they won't thank me for it. But what
0: you'll say to me in the end, that however much you know it's about money and everything else, it's about trust. And if there's fundamentally a question about trust
1: either way, then the relationship breaks down. Well, I can't speak for anybody else. But from my point of view... You also, after a certain number of years, want to work where you are wanted. And as soon as you feel that you might not be, that's not a nice situation. And then when you go to a place where you are wanted, that's like getting in a jacuzzi. So, you know, and that's a great place to be. So that, that's how it was for me. And it may well be that's the case. for Cam- I don't know. I can't speak on his behalf.
0: Uh, Thank you very much, Simon Mayo, uh, in your jacuzzi. Thanks very much for talking to us. And that's it for this week. Please do support our journalism. It's quite cheap at only £1.99 per month. And you can pay that easily using the link on our website and in the description of this programme on your podcast platform. You can get in touch with interview ideas and questions, please do, on Twitter by using at Roger or on Mastodon using at roger Bolton at UK or you can send an email to roger at com. Sorry, it's a bit of a mouthful. This podcast was presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it was produced by Kate Dixon. The sound was by Clifton Bank Studios, and special thanks to Quin Genty. It was a good egg production. Until next week. Goodbye.